Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm afraid it's another video sermon this week. Uh, A big thank you for your patience. We are all feeling better as a family, uh, but we're still testing positive and we don't want to pass on the virus to anyone else. So hopefully we'll be back with you next week. Uh, Please do have your Bibles open so you can follow along with the story uh, as we go this afternoon. Now, this week I saw a story, uh, well, a video really, uh, of an underground station in New York. Uh, And a a man had passed out and fallen onto the tracks uh, and fainted for some reason. Uh, And uh, everyone was looking on. uh, But ultimately he was saved because a policeman jumped down and another passerby uh, climbed down and lifted him back up uh, onto the platform. Everyone sort of pulled all three back up. And it was a near miss because a train was coming into the platform uh, as uh, just as they were they were getting off the tracks. I just wonder how he felt. Uh, when he woke up. I wonder if that sort of experience would change you. What sort of impact it would make. Your life surely would would feel different, wouldn't it? To have your life saved in that sort of dramatic way. I wonder if he would do things differently in the future. At the end of uh, this chapter, Israel find themselves in a similar position. They have been rescued by God. But what difference will it make to their lives? How will they respond to their gods? And how are we to respond to this amazing rescue story in these early chapters of Exodus? We're going to be thinking about that as well. We've only got one more sermon in Exodus before we take a break. Uh, And we've covered about 80 years of history from the start where, where God's people were crying out in turmoil over their slavery. Where a boy is born and protected and then called by God to lead his people and represent God to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is humiliated by by the sovereign power of God over the Egyptian religious idols and and system. The land has been ruined by plagues that their firstborn are dead as a mark of judgment. And we saw last week that at last uh, Pharaoh had said, let them go let them go it was that same phrase all the way along and they leave quickly remember we saw that last week didn't we god gave lots of instructions to help them remember uh, the rescue that they had experienced and part of the passover was uh, was leaving quickly but now we return to the story and what comes next it's a story that many of us will be familiar with from our days in sunday school if we've grown up uh, in church But I want us just to take it, uh, slow down a bit today, to feel the drama of the story again, to to help us actually appreciate what God has done for us as well. So we're going to start by looking through the whole story before then thinking about what that means for us. And really the headline is this, that God decisively saves his people by bringing a glorious victory over Egypt. He decisively saves his people by bringing a glorious victory over Egypt. Please have the passage so you can scan through as we explore this story. We join in verse 17 as God's people prepare to move on from their initial camping place, the the place of of Succoth, uh, and uh, moving on from that. I wonder how they would have felt, whether they would be optimistic or hopeful, maybe just that they could not believe what was happening to them. Now, the obvious route for them to go is through Philistine land. 
It would be fast, but actually it would be dangerous. They would face battles, probably war, in order to reach the promised lands. Now, they've been slaves for for many years. They are not a trained army. They are physically and spiritually, they're just not ready for this sort of conflict. So God guides them into the desert on a longer but safer route. And as we'll see, he's got a great plan to, to help Israel grasp his power. It's interesting, isn't it, that they keep uh, their promise. Do you see that in verse 19? Moses takes Joseph's bones with them so that they can be taken to the promised land to rest properly. You've got this kind of sense that they're taking everything. They're certainly not coming back. This situation is not going to happen again. Egypt will not hold the same amount of power. And they go out led by God. They go out led by God. In case, there's no doubt, is there, that God is with them. He gives them these great visible signs to prove it. These pillars of cloud by day and fire by night. What an amazing comfort would have come from that. Imagine when, when you were fearful and uncertain, you could look up, you could see the pillar there. Have an amazing sense of, of guidance and protection. There's such amazing hope and strength. That is provided for them here. Maybe it would have seemed a bit strange when the pillar started leading them in the direction they'd just come from. But you see that in, in verse 1 of chapter 14. They turn back and actually they, they, they camp somewhere where they've already been. Why? Because God has a plan here to, to bring about a final victory over Egypt. It's almost like he, he's setting a trap, uh, moving the chess pieces to that, towards that final checkmate move. They're going to camp by the Red Sea and God will gain glory because of what will happen. The Israelites, they just need to trust their saviour. Surely we think, surely that can't be too difficult after everything they've experienced. Well, now the scene changes and we snap back to Egypt, to Pharaoh and his advisors. He hears that Israel has left and whatever cloud of grief and defeat was there, it's like it just evaporates, it's gone. It says his mind changes. His mind changes. We see in verse 4, in verse 8, that that, that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart again. And he's thinking, well, what have we done? Our slaves have gone. It it seems mind-boggling, doesn't it, to, to see this change of heart happen so quickly. So soon after the worst day in the history of Egypt, with every household losing their firstborn son, Did Pharaoh forget everything that God had done and somehow expect that things would be different now? Well, he is quick to act. He gathers his army, 600 plus chariots. It's a hugely powerful, terrifying army and he sets out to bring back the Israelites. I mean, surely this this ragtag bunch of slaves would be no match for for the kind of incredible power and might of the Egyptian army. It doesn't take them long to catch up. Israel would have been a sort of very slow-moving, long line of people. There were families and herds and flocks, lots of people there. And can you just imagine it? You see that in verse 10. You're finally free, but, but you turn and look and you hear the thundering hooves of the chariots. And you see the dust flying up into the air as the army comes towards you. There's no hope in face of this. There's just terror. They thought they were safe. 
But this is happening now. They cry out to the Lord. But actually their words show that they're just as quick to forget as Pharaoh is. It's like all their faith, all their hope, because of everything they've witnessed, it just disappears. And they're filled with woe. They're filled with doom. Look at verse 11 with me. See what they say. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Can you imagine? What, what a statement. It would be better to be back in Egypt. can't believe it. I mean, they've cried out in, in agony and anguish over their slavery. And God has heard their cry and God has acted. It was awful in Egypt. And yet that's where their thoughts go as they face this terrifying army. It's quite ironic, isn't it? They, they keep the promise made to Joseph all those years ago. They take their, his bones with them. But they couldn't trust the promise of the almighty God who had promised to rescue them and keep them safe. Even with the pillar of cloud and fire in front of them, they would not trust him. Now, Moses' response is, is interesting. It's quite hard to maybe to get the tone from the English translation. Apparently, the original Hebrew suggests a tone that's, that's more of an angry rebuke than one of gentle correction. Now, my boys test my patience sometimes. I'm sure you've seen that. And at first, it's kind of easy to be gentle. But it gets to a point where actually you respond more strongly to help them grasp that they need to wise up. Hopefully, it's not just out of anger, but it's, it's kind of a strong statement. Look, look, pay attention to this. This is it. And Moses, this is what's happening with Moses here. It's like he's had enough of, of Israel's hesitancy to believe. Look what he says in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance God, the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Says, Look, don't forget your God, the Lord will fight. He will deliver. Do you not remember what's just happened in Egypt? At the end, it's there, it says, be still. Actually, a better sense of that word is perhaps be quiet or, or just shut up and see what God will do. Well, when God speaks to Moses in verse 15, Moses is the one that gets rebuked here. He, he represents the people before God. He's rebuked on their behalf. And God explains his plan that, that he is going to gain glory by defeating Pharaoh and his army. Despite their kind of faithless outcry, God continues to guard and protect his people. The signs of his presence, the angel of the Lord, this pillar of cloud, actually they move from the front. They, they move between Israel and the fearsome army of Egypt. And Egypt are kind of covered in darkness while Israel can see. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Very similar, perhaps, to the, uh, the plague of darkness in Egypt. Israel, remember, had light and Egypt didn't. It was a clear sign of, of God's judgment and power in contrast to, to the sun god, rather, that they worshipped. God was the true God. Surely, you'd think, surely Pharaoh would they'd have some pause for thought here. Hasn't this happened before? This feels familiar. I 
And yet pride blinds them. He is confident of his power and his victory. And what happens really is as night falls, God moves mightily to save his people. Moses stretches his hand out over the sea and the sea is divided in two. It it, it divides. God uses his creation and his power to help his people. I just don't think we can really imagine what this would have been like, where there was a, a sea blocking any chance of escape. Now there is dry land and Israel crosses over. Lots of people, lots of animals. It would have taken most of the night. Can you imagine being being there, crossing over on dry land? Maybe just this kind of fearful sense of wonder in the darkness of night as, as you go through the high walls of water on each side. It's a really powerful visual image. It's as if they're passing from death to life. God is saving his people. And as Pharaoh sees this, as maybe the cloud passes, the darkness is lifted, the army begin their chase. There's no marvelling at this incredible phenomenon. They're just focused on their goal. They, they charge in in pursuit. And as the night nears the end, it says as the last watch comes, God looks down. Isn't that a powerful phrase? He looks down on them and he throws them into confusion. He terrifies them. They're not sure where they're going. They're not sure what they're doing. The wheels of their chariots uh, fall off, maybe getting stuck in the mud. They can't move. And they finally realise what's going on. They come to their senses. We see that in verse 25. They say, let's get away. The Lord is fighting for them. They, They want to flee because they've got no hope of victory. It has taken them so long to realise this through their hard hearts and their stubborn pride. But ultimately, this here was God's plan to bring himself glory. Look at verse 26. Look what happens next. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. As light comes up, as the sun rises, it marks the end of the Egyptians, the end of their darkness. The water comes crashing back through and there's no escape. They are destroyed, defeated completely. God brings this decisive victory for his people. Just imagine that the shock that Egypt must have experienced when they heard about this. That the army isn't returning victorious. In fact, it's not returning at all. It's a kind of final note of this complete defeat in the war against the Lord. There's no denying who he is now. What about the Israelites? How do they respond The day before they'd been grumbling and despairing. What do they do now? Look with me at verse 29. Verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians... 
the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servants. They have been saved. God had saved Israel from the hands of Egypt with this singular hand of power. It's a contrast here, the, the, the pathetic power of Egypt in contrast to the, the mighty power of God. You see their response? They're moved to fear and trust. They do believe at last that God is with them. They can be trusted that he will do what he promises. They were safe at last. It's a real key moment in history. In fact, it's a paradigm for what it means for God to save his people. They were hopeless, helpless, and they've been saved by his grace, not because of their own merit, but because of his promise. Even as they grumble, he saves them completely. God uses the Exodus to show his character, to show how he works, how he loves people and saves them in spite of their sin. He is patient and merciful to, to all those that he loves. He is slow to anger. What an amazing thing to consider God's character. And then we see it over and over again in the history of God's people. In Joshua and Judges, the people turning away so quickly from God. God saves them and God sends the judges. God sends, uh, God fights for the army in the book of Joshua. Later on, when they, they are exiled to Babylon because of their stubborn idolatry, he promises return and restoration. We see this exodus pattern running through history and it's a pattern of gracious deliverance. So they were safe. They were safe. But safe for what? Safe for what? That's a question we need to ask, isn't it? They'd been set free. What did that mean for them? When, when we think of freedom today, maybe we think of just, we're free to do whatever we like. We've got this kind of idea of individual expression and action. We just do whatever we dream. That's not necessarily what's going on here. In fact, we get clues all the way through. Here's an example. Let me put a couple of verses up. Uh, on the screen here. You see these verses, Exodus 1 verse 14. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. A horrible reminder of what they were experiencing. And then we see this verse in, in Exodus 8 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Now what's interesting here is that, that the, the word uh, that, that we, is used here to talk about working them ruthlessly is also used here as the word worship. It's the same word in the original Hebrew. And it's a term that means to serve. It seems like a strange choice, doesn't it, for, for God to use here. But it's a term used again and again. Whenever it says, let my people go so that they may worship me, it's that, that same word. Same word used for that vicious hard work and slavery. Do you see the connection? Actually, they were enslaved to, to Pharaoh. They were serving him. But now God has saved them and brought them out to serve him in worship. They have been saved to serve. Not that same brutal slavery, but, but actually it's the right response to their rescue. God loves and saves his people with the expectation that they will fear and trust him and serve him. 
They are his people. They belong to him. He is the one who is slow to anger and abounding in love. Who wouldn't want to serve a God like that? What an honour to be known and loved and cared for by the creator God of the universe. Will they do that? Will will they realise that? Will they serve him? Will they worship him in how they live? Well, why not read on in the book of Exodus and see how it plays out. It is certainly not smooth sailing. But that's actually quite helpful, I think, for us to think about today as well. Why don't we we turn now from the story and think about what we should take from this story of this chapter, but actually of, of the Exodus as a whole as well. Here's a headline for you. God decisively saves us by bringing a glorious victory over sin and death through Christ. Now, I've spoken a lot about this over the last few weeks, how the Exodus points forward to the ultimate rescue that we have. And that's through the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings a new and better exodus. He rescues his people. He brings them safely to a new place, a place of eternal life with God. That powerful story of deliverance, the one we've just read. Maybe it should help us feel something of the drama of our own salvation. Why not take the time, actually, as we lead up to Easter to to visit the Gospels? to read the accounts of Jesus' life and death, to to feel the drama, the pain and anguish that he experienced in our place, the accusations, the the beatings, the crucifixion, as the nails are driven into his hands, as he faces the darkness of judgment and abandonment, as he did that so that we could come out from, from death to life. Something we would need to feel afresh, isn't it? And rejoice in that deep, rich security that we have because of the salvation in Jesus. We are safe at last. It is such good news, isn't it? It is such good news. But what about in our day-to-day lives? Is there something more concrete, perhaps, we need to take from this in particular? You know, it might be easy for us to to take the story of Exodus and and try and apply it directly to our life circumstances. There are lots of things that that we want God's help with when we're mocked for our faith at work or school, for example, or or when our lives are made difficult for some reason or another. Doesn't it feel right to say, well, well, God, look, you delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Now will you do the same for me? I need delivering. I need rescuing from this situation. Well, actually, I think, I think we need to be really careful here. We're not supposed to just draw a, a direct line from Israel's suffering to our own. It's, it doesn't quite work like that. If you think about it, the significance for us is not kind of in how we paint that direct line. It's actually in seeing what God has already done for us. Rather than kind of reducing this incredible story of rescue into just a kind of pep talk so that you know, we have something for when we go through hard moments or an encouragement that God will win our battles for us. No, we're supposed to, to, what we're supposed to take from this is that God has already won the battle, that we are safe in the Lord Jesus, that our daily troubles, our daily battles, which of course are real and, and deeply matter to God, they need to be approached from that perspective, that, that the battle is already ultimately won. So we're not supposed to kind of spot 
trouble and say, oh, that's my Egypt that I need delivering from, or, or that that person is like my personal Pharaoh and God needs to deliver me from him or her. Because what if he doesn't do that? What if we continue to suffer and struggle? We actually see that a lot in the New Testament. The New Testament authors, they don't kind of say, oh, God will deliver you from your suffering like he did the Israelites in Egypt. Now, when they talk about persecution, they talk about patiently enduring trials and even even rejoicing when they suffer. That's a, a staggeringly different attitude, isn't it? Do you see that, that, that what God did for Israel all those years ago, it's not a story we can just do what we like with. It's not really ultimately a story about Israel as much as it is a story about God, about who he is, about how he shows that, who he is in what he does. He is the Lord. It's not a story that's always replicated in, in the lives of individual believers, a kind of we're oppressed and we're going to be set free. It's a story that actually goes far deeper, revealing that underlying battle between God and evil, the eternal significance of his victory at the cross over death and over sin. That's the story that plays out in our lives, the forgiveness for sin and the safety and security we have through that. It's wonderful. It's amazing actually to think that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we're not waiting for that deliverance. The deliverance has already come in Christ. It's almost like we need to say, well, no, actually, we're not going through kind of the same struggles as Egypt. What we need to think is actually, it's as if that's all behind me, that that's gone. And, and I'm on the other side of the sea. I'm safe. I was a slave to sin. Now I am free to follow Christ. That's how I'm supposed to behave, isn't it? He has forgiven me. He has loved me. How do I respond to that? Well, we're called to serve in fear and in trust. To serve in the same way as as the Israelites were. Save to serve. To live in, in fear and live in trust. We see that in those last couple of verses. They feared the Lord. They put their trust in him. Now, fear is not the same kind of terror that the Egyptians faced. It's the reverent fear of of experiencing someone so great and so mighty and so powerful who is the maker of the universe and realising that he loves you. He has adopted you. There is awe there. There is adoration. And it's trusting him and not taking that lightly. Reverent fear. But it is trust. Trusting him. Offering him all the praise and worship. Thanking him for all that he has done committing our lives to him letting go of the things that 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 get in the way of trusting him wholeheartedly and serving him with gladness but we do that in the knowledge that he has saved us that our sin has been removed it's been wiped away washed away like the the army of egypt and we stand on the far side knowing that we are safe knowing that we are forgiven jesus uses similar language actually in john 5 24 when he says very truly i tell you Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Crossed over from death to life. If you're not a believer here today, listening to this, watching this later, I urge you to do that, to cross over 
from death to life. God gives you that opportunity today to find eternal life. If you realise that you need that rescue, come to him today. If you need more explanation, speak to someone after this. Go to the the people who who are staying at the front so that you can pray with them. Go and find someone that you trust. Talk to them. It's an amazing story, isn't it, of deliverance? I hope it's been helpful for you to look at this amazing story, to consider how it reveals the wonder of our salvation too. Next week, we're going to be looking at the song of praise that Israel sings together as they rejoice. It's right that we rejoice. We're going to pray and we're going to sing in rejoicing after that. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, this is a wonderful account of your special deliverance, of your mighty power. And thank you that it reminds us that that power was, uh, that you used your power to save us when Jesus died on the cross to save us. Thank you that he rose again. Thank you that he is victorious over sin and death and we follow our our risen saviour. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to serve in fear, trusting you with reverent fear, with respect, taking this seriously. Help us to change, Lord. Would you send your spirit into our hearts, convict us of the areas we need to uh, surrender to you. Help us worship you with every fibre of our being, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Please, Lord, would you be at work in us. Thank you that this story shows who you are, the true God, the, the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And thank you for pouring that love out on us. Please motivate us to serve you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen.